right. Thanks for listening. Why don't we take that short break here at RevolutionRadioFreedomSlips.com. And, yeah, we're going to get back to your host. Welcome back. This is the second hour of the live version of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, talking about the most controversial topics I can find, hoping to outrage everybody at least once a month. I have about, what, uh, 12 radio shows a month or something like that. I should be able to outrage just about everybody in that amount of time. So let's get into another outrageous conspiracy theory, which happens to be true. It's just a matter of which version of it you agree with. Clearly, COVID-19 was made in a lab. I think we could all agree on that as the most likely uh, hypothesis. Clearly, it was deliberately unleashed. It didn't just randomly escape. There are way too many clues telling us that that didn't happen. No, it was somebody did it on purpose. The question is who did it and for what purposes? And that's where the theories diverge a little bit. The one that I've been advocating the most is the Ron Unz biowar blowback theory that a whole lot of very strong evidence shows that it most likely was unleashed in a neocon attack on China and Iran that blew back and turned into a global pandemic. The other theory is that all of these benefits reaped by the global plutocrats and oligarchs were in fact foreseen and that COVID was deliberately unleashed as a global pandemic by them, with maybe a cover story of an attack on China and Iran. Who knows? And that's the one that Thomas Wilcott stands to agree with. So let's hear about his critique of Ron Unz's theory and why he thinks his alternative theory is better. Hey, welcome, Attorney Thomas Wilcutts. How are you? Good, Kevin. How are you? Good to have you back, Tom. So you're you're not just an attorney, but you also have a certain amount of expertise in scientific and even uh, biological topics. Uh, so you're actually a, a good person to uh, to throw this around with. Yeah, I have um... – uh, my education included uh, a degree in biophysics, and um, I, I was happy to uh, actually work with you and Ron on the um, the lab uh, origins um, program that w uh, we did. Ron and I and you uh, agreed on uh, the lab um, origins. So, uh, but uh, as far as uh, Ron's theory that this was um, an accident in terms of what we're seeing unfold in the in the United States and the Western world. Uh, I, I, I've been appointed by the Red Pill team, uh, Kevin, to uh, <laughs> to debate you on this one. You, you might be the overdose on Red Pill's team, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, I first of all, I, I, look, I understand that Ron uh, put together some pieces uh that have a a theme that seems to follow um one of the problems with with ron's uh theory i i don't think the timelines match uh well enough i mean uh he has uh this idea that in the wuhan military games is is was the cover for unleashing the virus as a attack on china so that was uh, in mid to late October, and uh, the idea is, the way Ron puts it, is that this is um, near a, a major uh, travel time in China with uh, the New Year uh, festivities or whatnot, 
And uh, so people are going to be coming in and from all parts of the country and then returning. So it's a great, uh, it's a great timing in terms of having maximum impact spreading a virus that's highly contagious and yet um, people are infected and don't know so that they interact freely, they travel freely and would spread this uh, all over. And that's, that's his idea of how they conceived it. The problem is, is that if that were how it was conceived, it would have worked. Uh, as Ron notes, China didn't begin to take measures against the virus until late January. So that's, you know, many months later, uh, in which case the, uh, the spreading of the virus would have had, uh, it, it would have had more of the impact it was designed to have. Which didn't I, have. I think it was earlier than that time, actually. I think, I mean, they detected it right at the end of November. And I think they swung into action like about, you know, a week, a week and a half later. So it was actually more like early to mid-January, I believe. Right. I was just, I quoted Ron. Ron, I mean, I didn't check his dates, but he has, he has the first lockdown. I have to pull it up here. He has it as January 23rd. Okay. He goes, then on January 23rd, on January, January 23rd, and after only 17 deaths, the Chinese government took the astonishing step of locking down and quarantining the entire 11 million inhabitants of the city of Wuhan. So that means the virus is running free, uh, supposedly dispersed the way it was designed to be dispersed, and yet had no real impact on China. I, I got to say, this confused me uh, early on at the very beginning. I kept I go, okay, if China's ground zero, I kept checking the stats out of China and they just didn't match. And um, uh, now Whitney Wibb ha has- well, Wait, wait, Tom, I, I, can, I can clarify that for you maybe a little better, at least explain how I probably Ron would see it, yeah. which would be that the, the way a virus like this spreads uh, is a kind of exponential increase. So when you first spread it, maybe you manage to uh, infect, you know, 100 people or something like that. And of those 100 people, a whole lot of them won't pass it to anybody or, you know, it, and then a few of them will, a certain number will. But if you get R, that number of average people, you know, that get that pass the virus on uh, or how many people you, each infected person passes on to, you get that R up to like, you know, one and a half or two or whatever it is you get this exponential process going. So a very small number of people are you know, infected initially in October, you know, mid to late October, and then it sort of doubles or whatever every two weeks or whatever it is. And so you don't, it's not even, it's not even gonna be on the map given the fact that only, you know, one in a hundred people dies from it. And that's an old person probably that was gonna die anyway. So you don't even notice it until you've got a lot of people who have it. And so you get to the numbers where it would get to be noticeable at the right time. If, if they gave it to, you know, a few hundred people or whatever in October, it's going to become really noticeable by the end of January, which is when it was noticed. And then they're going to really realize what the problem is in time to get their lockdown in mid or mid to late January. So I think the timeline lines up perfectly. Well, um, I would have to do a deeper dive into that. that that's not, uh, as I indicated in the paper, that's not my main issue uh, with Ron's theory. Um, this was pointed out by others, and and I guess you would have to roll up your sleeves. The problem, the problem with the theory is still this idea that you can eliminate a, a respiratory virus with lockdowns. I mean, you know, 
you'd have to do the math, Kevin, and you'd have to. Um, I mean, Ron says I don't. I'm not sure what his source is that that, that they locked that they they did a draconian lockdown for the entire population of China. Now I'm not even sure how you do that. Um, but in any case, uh, that's that's not my primary problem with Ron's thesis. My primary primary problem with it is the notion that the way this this event has been exploited in the United States and the West is just by accident rather than by plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, coincidence theory versus conspiracy theory, who benefits and so on. Right. I, I mean, I, I, what I did is I, I drew the analogy between Ron's blowback theory and the 9-11 blowback theory, the idea that that we uh, developed this outfit, Al-Qaeda, to um, fight the Russians in Afghanistan and unwittingly created a blowback situation resulting in 9-11. I, I think Ron's blowback theory is comparable to that blowback theory because okay. it's it's naive in its conception of the the way that the, the, the all the pieces are in place to react to this event and exploit it to the maximum, not to mention the history. I mean, this isn't the first time we've um, unleashed a, a lab-created virus and uh, cried wolf and tried to create a panic and tried to create a push for max vaccination. And that happened in 2009 with the swine flu virus. There was also a release of a of a, I think it was another swine flu virus uh, that came out of Fort Detrick in the 70s that um, they tried to ma- mass vaccinate the country and that, and that it was a failure. So th- this is this is not the first rodeo we have here. I mean, I would I would make comparisons to the Oklahoma uh, city bombing and the attempt to pass the Patriot Act. Okay, and 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 so you have these plans and these designs, and you hone them over time, and you finally perfect it, which is what I think happened here. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I think that's that's a reasonable argument. Although on the other hand, you you could also argue that well, first there is sort of public health 101 where you notice that there was a Spanish flu in 1919. You notice that there have been several other really nasty flu years where uh, huge numbers of people have died from flu. And you know, then there's, there are other infectious diseases as well. And so Public Health 101 is you're always drilling and getting ready for the next time something like 1919 comes along. But then secondly, and more importantly, I think, we're clearly moving into an age of endemic biological warfare. And anybody, and this is where I, I would urge you and others who are familiar with the material that you've been uh, pushing, uh, look, look at the material on the history of biological warfare and the kinds of predictions that have been coming at us since the 1990s that the future of warfare is in biological warfare. Given that, um, people in the know in in that part of the society, they know that we're going to have really nasty stuff coming at us, and we're going to have to get people used to being mass vaccinated all the time because that's that's the new face of warfare. And so I think the reason that they knew that a pandemic was coming at us sooner or later, and probably sooner, is that they know again, once again, that we are now in an age of endemic biological warfare. Yeah, I just think that there's there's not that much benefit uh, to be gained by the ruling elite in terms of a warfare uh, that's uh, engaged between major na- nation states like 
the United States, Russia, and China. I mean, well, we've been doing it. We've been doing it. Biological warfare between Russia, China, well, mostly the United States doing it. But <laughs> Russia was Russia loaded their missiles with enough uh, horrific biological weaponry to per, virtually permanently eliminate human life from all of North America back in the in the 80s and 90s. And they broke the Biological Weapons Convention to do it. And the Americans have attacked all kinds of countries with bioweapons, starting with Korea. So, yeah, we're, we're, we're and now with with the bio with the technology of genetic engineering, Again, um, the future is in biological warfare, and they know that populations are going to have to get shot up with all kinds of stuff from now, from here on out. And I think they're getting the Western populations used to it. Right, getting them used to it for what purpose? I mean, put your you got what you got. You know what I've learned, Kevin, over years of uh, litigating with Wall Street and uh, being a, uh, uh, <laughs> a a lifelong chess player is is anticipating the moves of your opponent and putting yourselves in their shoes i mean i i gotta tell you wall street has exceptional tactics when it comes to uh being in litigation and so playing this out what what is there to gain by the wealthy ruling elite in a war between the united states and china put yourself to sit in a boardroom with the fellow oligarchs, and you make the case for attacking China, a country whose economy we built up for our own purposes. Well, I, I, I could do that pretty easily. I mean, I wouldn't because it would be, uh, it'd be immoral and unethical. But as a sort of devil's advocate exercise, it would be very easy to sit in that boardroom with the same people who were sending John Perkins around the world as an economic hitman to try to open up other countries to big Western banksters. And just as you know, the, the former uh, Japanese prime minister, wasn't it, who, who said that they threatened him with a, uh, a, a nuclear tidal wave if he didn't uh, uh, offer up Japan's public bank uh, on the market and privatize it. Uh, likewise, you sit around that boardroom and you say, "Okay, we've been, you know, we've gone after Venezuela, you know, but that's small potatoes. The big, the big uh, problem here, folks, is China. China's got an, uh, a public bank. They're running rings around us. They're growing at nearly double digit uh, a year. They're now the world's biggest economy. They've got uh, something like, you know, like 30 times as many high IQ people as we do, and they're all hard workers." And they're going to eat our lunch and they're going to their system is going to be the future, the public banking system. And we're going to lose everything. Our plan to use private liberal banking and impose that on the world and create our one world dictatorship with us in control is terribly threatened by the rise of socialist public banking driven China. Therefore, we must stop the rise of China. And guess what? There's a whole China hawk war party that's saying exactly that. Right. But these are the these are the neocons that. Uh... Uh, Ron is referring to who have no real power, okay? And and, and if you look at the, the Rockefellers, the Gates, the Buffets, these are the people that uh, seem to have a very happy relationship with China and developed China in the first place. And what I recall, uh, and I I'd have to go back. Um, I tried to write this up. You're always giving me. I'm always ending up with these writing projects with you, Kevin. While trying to uh, yeah, carry out a law practice, I'm sorry. 
I'm going to have to start paying you pretty soon. Yeah. (laughs) But in any case, uh, one of the things I didn't get to is to go back to the and walk through the actual history. I I, I recall that the Rockefellers were were fascinated with China, mainly because of the degree of social control. And I and I still think that that is a model. And and part of Whitney's Whitney Webb's work uh, along these lines, she she um, uncovered documents where um, a combination of intelligence, military, and big tech uh, was, was uh, discussing how we need to start replicating uh, China's social control. And it, it, it's not that uh, China is, a, is so much of a competitor on that score. I just think they're the model. And, and like the way... Well, I just I see too much cooperation between uh, the United States and China to um, suggest open warfare. Um, I just don't see it. And um, and, and, you know, and you take the big tech companies, China, China is such a great market. It is such a. uh, a place uh, for profits uh, for for our some of our major industries, which include big tech. And you know, big tech has been kept out of China to a degree because they won't agree for whatever reasons. I don't know if it's in their charters or because of uh, our own government uh, restrictions to engage in the type of censorship that that China requires. Well, now they're that's becoming commonplace and that might that might be a step towards uh they're getting um uh gates and others uh, getting uh, uh crossing some barriers over there but uh you know we have uh, trade deals um i think uh biden's kid got a bunch of money from china um but also i don't see i, I look at kissinger's formula uh, if you control food, you, you can control populations. If you can control oil, you can control countries. If you can control currency, you can control everything. I don't see where China controls any of those. Um, as a matter of fact, China's, China's investment in our debt uh, would strike me as being a point of vulnerability. I think there's there's um, too much to be lost in open warfare with China. I, you know, I think it's it provides. Yeah, that's why they're doing covert, deniable warfare, like bio warfare. Yeah, but uh, I think there's. I, I don't think. You know, when you talk about the threat on, on Japan, I, I think uh, there's enough to threaten on both sides uh, of this arrangement. But but I, I see more cooperation than I see um, uh, warfare here. And as a matter of, I mean, when you look at this COVID thing, Kevin, I mean, look at it. The, the cover story is that, I mean, first, and, and by the way, I don't believe this is a coincidence. When I went back, when we were working on the program for the lab uh, origin theory, I went back and, and looked at all of it. And the, one of the things that struck me as very odd is when we shut down gain-of-function research, it, it was such an anomaly. It, it didn't fit. It didn't make sense, okay? And, and, and what I've learned over the course of my life is whenever through the course of history you look at an event and it just doesn't make any sense, 
it's probably because the explanation isn't isn't the truth. Okay, and um, in this case, we shut down this. Uh, uh, we temporarily shut down the gain of function research, and that was the excuse for diverting funding to a private institution, which then diverted the funding to the Wuhan lab. So not only are we funding this Wuhan lab, they are allowing our people to inspect it. And uh, the reports that came from that inspection, they all fit within this this, um, false flag narrative, which is that the virus was released in China, and um, China's dealt with these viruses before, and they know how to deal with them, which is draconian lockdown, and now it's hitting us, and we have to be like China. I mean, our our whole reaction to this pandemic really is to be like China, censor like China, lockdown like China, right, right, social right. control like China. Yeah, that, that may be true, but what you're really missing here, I think, is that what rivalry, as Rene Girard pointed out, is not about difference. It's about sameness. We get into rivalries with each other based on the fact that our desires are basically the same as the others. And so just as in World War II, allied countries like the United States borrowed from some of the same sort of mass propaganda techniques that were used in the dictatorships like the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany in order to have a totalizing war economy and to mobilize the entire population for total war in the same way that the the dictatorships did. That didn't mean that the United States and the financiers in, in charge of the United States didn't actually go to war against Germany. Uh, it we we use you know and and we had investments in both Germany and especially the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union actually uh, won World War II thanks to American aid and lend-lease. So and and then suddenly we were at loggerheads with with the Russians immediately after the war and nearly came to nuclear World War III uh, numerous times, including over Korea. So the fact is that just because the Western deep state oligarchs know that if they're going to compete with China, which has a huge head start, I think you you are grossly underestimating the uh, nationalism and the ability uh, and and the resources and the chances that China has of becoming the world's biggest power. And I think that the Western oligarchs are going to look at China and say, well, they've been successful. We don't want to copy their national bank because then we would lose our privileged position. So what are we going to do? Well, uh, we're going to have to regiment our population, you know, number one, if we're going to escalate our hostilities with China to try to prevent the rise of China, we absolutely have to put an end to this sort of anarchic, you know, free for all uh, system that we've got. And we're going to have to basically, you know, get out the, the whip and, and get whip people into line. We're going to need draconian censorship, as you always need during wartime. We're, we're going to need uh, over-the-top propaganda, as you always need during wartime. And one thing we're really going to need, is because there's going to be a lot of deniable bio-war going on, is we're going to need people to get used to lining up for their vaccines. So all of this is explained by, yeah, they need those techniques that China has, absolutely, in order to fight against China. You know, I, I think that one of the problems that a lot of the red pill overdose people have is thinking that there's one group in charge of everything that's totally in charge and is making everything happen uh, and it's all working out. And if however things work out, it must have been the way this group wanted it to work out. Well, I, I think your 9-11 blowback theory actually could be turned upside down, Tom. And you could say that 
okay, the neocons did 9-11. They did it to go into these wars, seven countries in, in five years and so on, among other things, and to make Islam the enemy for in perpetuity. They did That was their purpose. However, look at how it worked out. It hasn't worked out well at all for them. Uh, they just lost in Afghanistan. They lost in Iraq. Israel is on the ropes. 9-11 uh, didn't work for them uh, and because they're freaking idiots. They're reckless morons who are doing these insane over-the-top things that might be logistically impressive, like blowing up towers and creating uh, these kinds of uh, hideous viruses. Very impressive. However, uh, strategically, these neocons are, are idiots. And so to me, just as it's not at all implausible that the morons who blew up the World Trade Center would suffer horrific blowback and America's biggest catastrophic defeat in history in Afghanistan, uh, it doesn't surprise me that they would be stupid enough to think that they could one up their pork flu and swine and, and, and bird flu destroying China's meat industry in 2018 and 2019 and hit them with a human virus in 2020. That's that's exactly what I would expect from these moron neocons. And I would expect it to blow back on the West in the same way that 9-11 blew back on the West. Well, that might see, Kevin. I mean, again, I think that's ascribing too much power to the neocons. Ideologues don't ideologues have never wielded real power over the course of the his, history. Um, it, it, it's it's wielded by the people who possess real power, not by people who who come up with um, political dogma. I think I think um, this idea suffers from too, too much significance being placed on nation states. I just don't think they carry the significance that they did uh, going back to some of the more recent wars. But listen. Um, do you, do you know Aaron Russo? Well, I don't know him personally, but I've seen some of his videos. It's oh, you know, so so. This is what yeah. That's what I. That's what I. I, I he he's no longer with us, and I didn't mean that you actually know him. But yeah, to know of um, he, the interview he gave about uh, knowing one of the Rockefellers. You remember yeah, yeah, that? Nick Rockefeller, who said we invented feminism in order to force women into the workplace, where we could tax them and regulate them, and so on. Right, and, and Gloria Steinman uh, uh, admitted uh, working with the CIA on that um, on that score. So, but um, but one of the but the side, but let's look again at this uh, neocon control of these events. What what Rockefeller said to Russo was in advance of nine eleven. He says he, he he described this upcoming event which it was obvious to Russo after the fact that he was talking about 9-11. He, he goes, this is going to happen, blah, blah, blah. And then he said, and further down the road, the real thing that we're going to accomplish is we're going to chip people, okay? Which is which you, you can understand how this is a major source of population control, which is the ultimate... Um, goal of um, rulers and tyrants and authoritarians. They they are outnumbered. They are greatly outnumbered, and they have to be. They always have to have a, a little bit of um, of a paranoia in the background, given given those um, uh, diverse uh, uh, or uh, lopsided numbers against them, and so, and and they have to be obsessed with control and the uh, and. So Rockefeller foretells chipping people and having uh, 
basically currency digitized. So, you know, if you're if you run afoul of the ruling authority, someone can just flip a switch and take care of that problem. And that's where we're heading, you know, and. You know, I, I you know, when you look at um, a ruler like Putin and you look at the, the Chinese leadership, why why do any major leaders have a problem with moving in, in, in such a direction? That, that's one thing that uh, I think Chomsky got right when uh, he he said one of the things he said in the aftermath of um, I think nine eleven that every authoritarian ruler around the world w- was happy because their power just increased. Although he thinks it's an accident, and see, I think that's where Ron is. He thinks that this major benefit, this major um, uh, a shift in authority over the populace that we're seeing in the United States and all across the West, his theory is that it's an accident, Kevin. An accident. And that, well, that's, that's why I think he's fundamentally wrong. I mean, I, you can I, see the preparation. Do you, do you really think they're happy with it, though? You, 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 think, you think that the, uh, I mean, it depends, of course, which ruling elites we're talking about. I mean, we could just take a cross-section of all of the America's billionaires and pull them and see what they think. Or we could talk to the people on the National Security Council or maybe the inner uh, secret council of the you know, Council on Foreign Relations or Bilderbergers uh, or the trilateralists or what have you. You know, whatever, however you want to you know, say who's elite and who isn't. If we polled all these elite people, like, do you, you think things are going well for your operation and, and so on? Uh, do you really think they would be that happy with the way things have been going since COVID tripled the West? Absolutely, absolutely, which is why all of their efforts are going in to to pushing it further and further. I mean, you have the media, which is uh, 24-7 pressing the theme of giving up freedom, giving up choice, giving up, you know, you have to do it for the, the, the overall good. You have to submit yourself. You have to be willing to make all these sacrifices. The, I mean, wh- which part do they not like, Kevin? The fact that they have so much more control or that their profits have, have gone to lengths which they've never seen before. Well, the, the ones who are making the money are probably happy that they're making the money. But I think there are probably some of them who are not making so much money as well. But when they look at especially the National Security Council types are not so much in it for the money themselves. Uh, they're, you know, they're platonic guardians. Every society in history has had its platonic guardians whose role is to do whatever it takes to protect their societies against all enemies, foreign and domestic. They shepherd their societies. They're the sheepdogs. They're like wolves. They kill. They're happy to kill as many people as they need to, any people, friend, foe, whatever, as long as it helps guard the society against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So those sheepdogs are those platonic guardians of our society, I think have a lot of power. They have all the power. You know, they have to deal with money, too. They have to get money somewhere. So they have to deal with these rich idiots. But I think the platonic guardians, by and large, have a lot more power over things like war and peace and policy than your average random rich idiot does. And I think those people are not at all happy with with going on. I think they see the West is falling apart. The United States is falling apart. Their power base is falling apart. I think they're miserable. They just lost big time in Afghanistan. They just saw an unparalleled implosion uh, in terms of social cohesion uh, due to COVID. So, no, I I think that, yeah, there might be some 
uh, short-sighted um, investors uh, who aren't who are quite happy that their net wealth has gone up. But I think the uh, more plugged-in managers of the society and the you know the National Security Council sheepdog types are probably very concerned. You know, because they they don't want uh, the United States to fragment and blow up and split up and have a civil war between red and blue and all of that. They don't want uh, the kind of extreme instability and chaos that's looming right now because that's their power base. And if it blows up, then they lose all their power. And guess who has the power then? It's the CCP and their friends. uh, And (laughs) they don't want that. No, 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 no. You have a different concept of the people who um, you perceive as uh, being in control and shepherding uh, the future. Uh, I think the I think these these people are are better exemplified by um, what I gave you a, a Bertrand Russell, for example. Okay, the, the, these are the the intellects of the ruling elite, and I think what they see. Uh, I, I think it's pretty clear that one of the major problems that they view is uh, population control. This is what I think the elites um, uh, focus on. And and w- when you, you talk about shepherding uh, the population into the future, what they're looking at is how do we do this in a manner in which um, we take care of overpopulation. I mean, they see that they actually see killing innocents as a simple act of nature uh, and and, uh, a Darwinian type act. The same way, you know, the um, you the people who who um, put on a hunting season for the deer because they're overpopulated think they're actually doing the herd good. I mean, this is the type of thinking I, I think you're dealing with. And I think um, the people who have done the work to show that the elderly, the sick and elderly populations were killed off in this um, operation, I, I think that, that the, the, the evidence is strong there. I mean, the, the do not resuscitate, the put a, putting them on ventilators and, and whatnot, um, well, that, the way I, I, they I handle it. I don't think they killed enough people to put a dent in the population problem. Uh, but I do, I do see your point, though, that it's always conceivable that if COVID really keeps spinning out of control and these variants keep cropping up that keep defeating the vaccines and they need more vaccines, more variants, it's already uh, cut the uh, U.S. average life expectancy by a year or something, year and a half or something like that. And so it's possible that there could be, you know, an actual effect uh, after a few years. And it's also possible that COVID and or the vaccines are going to re- reduce fertility and we're meant to. So that, I think that's actually a uh, not completely implausible argument. But I, I do think the ventilators and stuff, I don't think they uh, I, I think that was more a case of uh, a kind of criminal incompetence. But it wasn't so widespread that you could call that a population control measure. No, I'm not suggesting that killing the elderly was um, controlling population as much as it was getting rid of a segment of the population that was considered a drain on society. That's, that's an interesting point. Yeah. 
Well, I, I, you've made that point, and you've had guests yeah. on that have made that point, and they've and uh, some of them have done a good job. I, I as part of preparing for this, I I, I couldn't um, dig deep on that point, but I've heard people who made the point, and I think the evidence is reasonable in these respects. Um, I mean, it may be that Governor Cuomo blundered when he uh, uh, shepherded uh, um, infectious uh, people into the nursing homes. But overall, I, I think there is an indication that um, they, they, they just didn't make the same efforts at, at saving people that they, they typically do. And the pandemic uh, created the excuse for that. As far as you're talking about, you know, whether the vaccines can stop this virus, the, the vaccines aren't going to stop the situation. They're going to aggravate it. Okay. Whether, uh, what's the fellow's name, Vandenbosch? Uh, yeah, there's Vandenbosch and there's Luc Montagnier. Those are the two most famous experts who have said that mass vaccinations during a pandemic are uh, stupid because you, all you end up doing is breeding vaccine resistant variants and possibly uh, helping the virus uh, evade immunity. Uh, so they, are, they would be expecting that this problem that we're seeing with the, the variants is going to just keep on keeping on and maybe keep getting worse. Right. I don't know if that's true or not, though. I mean, it's dueling experts. Who do you believe? Well, I don't know if it's true either. I mean, um, you, you can't, you certainly can't take, uh, anything the public officials say uh, and just accept it. I mean, you um, the the um, the health regulators in this country are captured regulators, classically captured regulators by the pharmaceutical industry. Okay, and and perhaps other um, um, elements of the the healthcare industry. And the United States healthcare industry. Is anything but focused on the um, welfare of its citizens. Uh, if you look at and, and you voted for uh, RFK Jr. Kevin for president, right? Yeah, although I, I did that <laughs> at least as much, if probably more so, because of his being forthright about talking about who killed his father and uncle, than because of his work on vaccines. But I actually respect his work on vaccines. He's not unilaterally opposed to all vaccines, by the way. Um, he's just, you know, work comes at the whole topic of vaccines from a skeptical viewpoint. And like you, I uh, experienced a, real, a very horrific situation from a vaccine and researched vaccines long ago and concluded that overall the benefits of vaccines have been greatly exaggerated and the dangers have been uh, greatly downplayed. So I think we're on the, pretty much on the same page on that. Well, I, I certainly agree with uh, Bobby in that. It, 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 the, there, there isn't any um, one size fits all with vaccines. You have to look at the science for any any given vaccine, just like you would with any given medication. When, when people make blanket statements about uh, about vaccines, that uh, makes me think. Well, well, what do you think? All drugs are are good, or all drugs are bad? I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, that's a good comparison. Like, obviously, there are a lot of people that are taking way too much pharmaceutical medication than is good for them. I have family members, uh, actually two who are now passed away, who had to have these huge organizers to keep track of all their pills because they believed in medications and the doctors couldn't resist giving them what they wanted. 
Uh, and it was it was completely ridiculous. They would have been much better off with uh, vastly fewer medications. And I think that vaccines are a little bit like that, where there's money to be made and people get into, you know, they, they believe that this is going to help. And eh, maybe if some of them do, but I think we're grossly over vaccinating people uh, in the same way that we're grossly over medicating people. Well, you'll get no uh, argument from me on that score. But the reason I brought up Bobby was because, and he he, and he just um, finished a book that's coming out in a couple of months, I think, on uh, our uh, Mr. Fauci, Mr. I am science Fauci. <laughs> and, uh, but I've heard him speak about him before, and he's obviously studied him having written a book. But one of the points he makes is that here is Fauci, the longest-serving bureaucrat since um, J. Edgar Hoover, and and the highest-paid, I, I think, uh, federal employee in the entire nation, and um, and he and here his job is to be a steward of American health, and there's been a steady decline on nearly every measurable metric during his reign. OK, so it's, it's obvious that he is not judged by how healthy the American public is. He's judged uh, on what he delivers to the pharmaceutical industry and the uh, oligarchs in general is, is what I'd say about that. So, yeah, no, I, I agree. And, you know, I also I don't really think that the Western medical health paradigm is the way to go in terms of protecting and, and enhancing your own health. You know, I've discovered that uh, I, well, for instance, um, the, the kinds of uh, alternative lifestyle uh, approaches that uh, let's see uh, some of my, my previous radio guests um, like uh, Josh Middledorf have talked about uh, his anti-aging uh, lifestyle <laughs> ideas and so on. I think after researching all of that, you know, I, it seems to be just bizarre, like when you could overall, you could extend the average American lifespan by something like two and a half, three years if we just eliminated all cancer overnight. But you could extend you could get 10 years of even healthier lifespan just by doing intermittent fasting, uh, a little bit of melatonin at night, uh, various kinds of nutritional uh, therapies, largely cal caloric restriction or, or eating less, uh, and uh, very serious exercise, um, plenty of sunlight for vitamin D, uh, which is the single most uh, life-enhancing substance there is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I, I think the whole medical establishment is working on a very flawed paradigm that only gets at a small piece of the puzzle of making people healthy. Uh, so I'm with you on all of that, but but I still don't think that any of this really shows that Ron Unz is wrong in his basic thesis. But at most, I think that your arguments that they are gaining so many benefits, or there are those who are, you know, there are some very powerful people who are gaining perceived benefits from this COVID pandemic, that we should assume that they did it on purpose. And I think that argument holds up to a certain extent, or at least it makes it plausible that we could imagine that just as in other such events, we see that there may have been more than one hand at work. Um, Laurent Guyano's approach to the JFK assassination 9-11 is that there were sort of an American team and an Israeli team in both cases. 
And the Israeli team went up the American team, probably thanks to having some sand implanted in the American team. Uh, and likewise, with COVID, we could imagine a national security community platonic guardian team deciding to do this reckless neocon attack on China. But you could also have people who were more or less in that same orbit, that same world, who either anticipated the blowback as you know and had contingency plans for it and thinking it wouldn't be so bad or one or more of them might very well have chosen to make it go, go global and create the blowback by releasing COVID elsewhere uh, so it's I think that kind of scenario sort of a little bit of a both and you know your scenario and Ron Unza's scenario uh, is is better in some ways than your scenario alone because of the evidence that Ron has for his. I mean, he really has some very, very strong uh, circumstantial evidence and some that's almost beyond circumstantial. So, uh, so Kevin, when you mentioned these national security personnel, can you give me an example of one such person? that? So I, I know what you have in mind when you make that kind of reference. Uh, one such person? Yeah, okay. I mean, uh, yeah. I, I'm trying to I'm figure yeah, out. Just pick any of the generals on the Joint Chiefs uh, today, you know, randomly pick a name from the National Security Council. There have been all sorts of people who've come and gone through there. Um, and then, of course, there are the ones who are sort of uh, the ones the ones you don't know will be the ones who actually do the the hands on work. You know, the kind of John Perkins friends, the asteroids are the people who make things happen. And, you know, they would be the ones who would get viruses spread and get buildings to blow up and things like that. But the people who would be making these decisions, with, you know, with 9-11, the kind of people I'm talking about would be Paul Wolfowitz, uh, Richard Pearl, Dov Zachheim, um, and other signatories to the PNAC document that called. Yeah, for see, I, for I, don't think these, I don't think these people have any real power. Uh, they're just functionaries. I yeah. don't know. I mean, the same has been, I mean, even Kissinger has been described as, you know, just a lackey messenger. I mean, they, they, they bring with them certain talents and the ruling elite are always interested in talented people and, and harvesting their talent, but they don't never give them real power. Why would they? So well, the, when the talented, if they have enough talent, they can make their own agendas happen sometimes uh, if they're up against money people who have less talent. Well, I, I, <laughs> I think they pitch their, you know, they make their pitches to the board and then the board decides. They don't decide. Um, and uh, and then they just follow orders. I, I don't think these type of people you're mentioning ha have any uh, significant power. But and, and I and I hearken back again. I li I really like this Russo interview. A because the, the, I, I, I listen. You listen to the guy, and there's just no reason to disbelieve him. I mean, he was um, he he was out there speaking on uh, uh, important issues and uh, trying to make a difference and using his position. And so when he says. You know, um, that shortly before 9-11, a Rockefeller tells him, um, and the big agenda is we are in the future going to chip people. And then you have the defining event, the COVID pandemic, which, which more than any event that you can imagine is going to bring forth this agenda 
And then you ascribe power that there's never proof that these people, you're never going to be able to prove that these national security people, these neocons have any real power. And it goes against what we understand of history, what Carol Quigley writes about in uh, Tragedy and Hope. Wait, 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 get, wait, with the chipping, what, uh, how, do you really, how has COVID made chipping happen? You're going to be able to uh, uh, inject people with nano, any kind of nanotechnology that you desire. Not to mention, you don't, you don't necessarily need to solve that problem with chipping. You can require an electronic passport. Okay, uh, the, the the COVID will bring about uh, contract tracing and verification of medical status, and um, but if you listen to right, but Nick Rockefeller said chipping, and I don't think we're any closer to chipping today than we were before COVID. Oh, we certainly are. Really? Well, I mean you the know. chipping. And now some people again. think the vaccines have chips, but I haven't seen any evidence for that. Well. Whether they do, whether we first of all, yeah, we don't know what they're injecting in. You, you, you've heard these people who who do this little magnet test. They put the magnet. Yeah, that, that's kind of interesting. I looked at, at, at my first reaction was, oh, this is this is kind of goofy. They're trying to make the uh, the COVID dissidents look stupid. But I did see a couple of them that were fairly convincing. So I'm I'm a, now a, a, a magnet challenge agnostic, but I'm not vaccinated myself, and so I can't do the to test myself. Well, an, another thing that people have looked into a lot more than I have are, are these presentations that have been made at, at Davos uh, regarding this technology and how advanced it's going to be um, and, uh, and how it can be implemented by a simple injection. Uh, but even, even setting aside the injections, I, I think, um, I mean, the, the – I mean, do you think they're going to impose vaccine passports? It's it's looking pretty grim. Um, you know, I agree that there's a huge threat to civil liberties around this, just like there was around 9-11. Of course, in both cases, you know, war is the health of the state and war is the excuse for eliminating civil liberties. If we ever do get into like a really big time uh, World War III, you can bet that our civil liberties will be curtailed even more drastically than they were in World Wars One and Two. World War One, Eugene Debs had to run for president, president from a prison cell because he opposed U.S. entry to the war. And that in itself got him in prison and lots of other people, too. So yeah, that's what part, we're getting part, into. Part of my thesis against Ron is you don't we you don't need that type of conventional warfare any longer. You have this new war on terror, which is the perfect war because it never ends. Uh, it's always there. It's always to be fought. Uh, and you don't destroy your own. Uh, well, and fighting it, uh, and um, and now we have this war on the COVID vaccine. Uh, I mean, the COVID virus. <laughs> it should be a war on the vaccine. Um, I mean, this vaccine. <laughs> There's one of those two, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how do you think this works with with like the? We only have a few minutes, but I kind of agree with you that the wealthy families do have quite a bit of power uh, just for, you know, you mentioned the example of Aaron Rousseau uh, talking to Nick Rockefeller, who talked about the Rockefeller family actually being uh, fully cognizant of 9-11 before it happened. And likewise, I interviewed William Pepper, who I think is, is one of the best alternative uh, sources on these matters. He used to date uh, one of the Rockefeller women and 
he uh, was he he discovered um, in his research on the various 60s assassinations that apparently David Rockefeller had to send his right hand man, John McCloy, to Dallas to okay the assassination of John F. Kennedy. So they had to get the nod from the Rockefeller family, apparently, to pull that off, at least if William Pepper is right. And I think he's a pretty credible source. So, yeah, I agree. There's a plutocratic elite out there. How it how they organize themselves specifically, how they interface with the hands on people, the um, the national security state experts, the sheepdogs and the platonic guardians is a pretty complex topic. But you can kind of figure it out by looking at the way they create these organizations um, the CFR, the trilateralist, and so on. But to me, it, none of this gets in the way of Ron Unz's thesis because these Western plutocratic banksters see China as real competition. Yeah, they're they're invested in China. Yeah, there's trading with the enemy going on all the time. But they want China to be like, and they want Russia too to be like Russia was in the 1990s. They want to be able to plunder it. They want to move in and take it over. And both Russia and China aren't letting them, much less Iran. So they have a serious world war situation on their hands. And I think they know it, and I think they're pursuing it in the typically psychopathic way that we would expect. So, so Kevin, here's one thing you know about these top-level elites. Okay, their, stock, their stock and trade is information, okay? They, they make sure that they have the information. So they're aware of 9-11. They're aware of the JFK assassin, assassination. So rogue operations like Ron posits changing the world don't happen. They know about them, and uh, it's not an accident, okay? Uh, so that, that's, that's just the major problem with the theory. They know about it, and it do, they don't sign off on it unless it benefits them. And your foreknowledge so, arguments kind of enhance that particular claim. Like, you've, you know, you put forward this various evidence of COVID foreknowledge and drills and things like that. Right. Just exactly. like with 9-11. Right. So you, so, need, yeah, you, need, you, you need to re rethink uh, this is the best fits the evidence and the logic, Kevin. I, I suggest to you, on behalf of many of your listening audience. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. I, I have a, a lot of complaints where people kind of tease me that, oh, we the COVID origin thing comes up, and I'm always telling people to read uns. Well, and by now, I suppose most of my listeners probably have. Um, I just find it uh, a very strong argument. That is a it's it's a little less speculative and it but it, it doesn't really rule out a lot of what you're saying, too. I mean, we could again, we could have both and to a certain extent here. Um, but for the for the moment, we're going to have to agree to disagree, because I, I think the um, the attack on China and Iran thesis has stronger evidence. So we can say, yeah, kind of clearly started that way. And whether there was this other dimension to it. Um, who knows? But you and you also could be right that it was it wouldn't have been so rogue that the uh, quote unquote rogues that did it might very well have gotten the nod from some powerful uh, wealthy forces. Who knows? Okay, we hit the end. That's the music. Well, thank you so much, Tom. It's been great. I really appreciate your amazing work. If I ever needed an attorney to go after Wall Street, I would hire you. Thomas Wilcox. <laughs> okay, Kevin, thank you as well. Take care. Okay, take care. Bye. Thomas Wilcox, he is actually an attorney who goes after Wall Street. Kevin Barrett, I'm a radio host who goes after Wall Street and other, top, other fat cat and powerful uh, topics and lobbies and bad guys. Truthsheehead.com is the website. See you next week.